Hi, I'm Ari Mizell, and this is The Art of Less Doing. I'm going to teach you how to optimize, automate, and outsource everything in your life, including your health, in order to be more effective. I want you to stress less, free up as much time as possible, and do the things you want to do. This week's episode of the Less Doing Podcast is brought to you by Earth Class Mail. Earth Class Mail moves your snail mail to the cloud, giving you instant access 24-7 and integrates with the tools and services you use every day. It's crazy that we've moved everything we do for business over to the digital world, but still need to pick up, sort, and manage physical mail. With Earth Class Mail, you can get all your mail scanned and accessible online 24-7. You can search your mail, send invoices over to your accounting software, sync important documents into cloud storage, deposit checks, and really just make your business a whole lot easier. You'll also get a real professional address to share publicly with customers, business partners, and investors. And you'll never need to worry about someone showing up at your front door if you run your business from home. Now, I've checked out Earth Class Mail, and I think it's a brilliant solution that's perfect for businesses and independent entrepreneurs of all types. Visit lessdoing.com slash postal, and you'll get your first month of service free when you sign up. That's lessdoing.com slash postal. Welcome to the Let's Doing Podcast, or welcome back to the Let's Doing Podcast, our faithful listeners. This is episode 206 with Taylor Pearson and my co-host at large, Nick Sonnenberg. How's it going? It's going well, other than the fact that I think I seem to be a little sick, but the show must go on. So baby Chloe was born this week. For those uh, listening, I've been talking about this for a while. Chloe Elise Mizell was born on February 16th at 3.38 in the morning, weighing seven pounds, nine ounces. So now I have four kids. And so far, uh, it's been great. I mean, I don't, I, I seem to do pretty well with less and less time in my life. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's working. <laughs> Are you on to the fifth yet? Yeah, right. No, I don't think so. I think uh, even number. Fortunately, my wife and I are both just enough OCD that the even number matters. It just might mean that you have to go for six. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, or, or, uh, we we actually know a couple that had three kids and they wanted the fourth and they got they got twins. So um, they, so did they go for the sixth? No, no, they did not. They ended up with the five. So <laughs> you, you know, in like, in like China and like some places in Asia, like there's there's like lucky and unlucky numbers that they go crazy about. So I'm sure like twins well, four four is, four is a terrible number in China. Yeah, yeah. So like, say you already have two kids and then you got stuck with twins. Like you have to have a fifth or something more gruesome. But yes, right. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Um, yeah, four is four is definitely not a good number in Chinese culture. So, uh, but anyway, so first thing I want to talk about is a thing that's personal, not personal, but for for in our world, Nick, and I know is relevant to people, and that's LastPass versus One Password. Now, I actually got this question. I've gotten this question so many times for literally, I think, years. I mean, I don't know how long One Password's been around, but for a long time, people ask me what my opinion is. And the truth is, before less doing assistance, I, I wasn't using LastPass for anything. Like, I wouldn't even use it for fancy hands. I would just make a new username or I'd give them some generic password that I was using for things I didn't really care about. So I never really was big on these services. And I would always just say, oh, yeah, LastPass is the biggest and should use that. But LastPass and you heard it here, is terrible. LastPass is really bad for those listening and those listening and those using it. And if LastPass people are listening, you guys have the worst customer service I've ever seen from any company. And Nick is Nick has dealt with it 90%, 97% more than I have. And from what I've seen, it's been terrible. So 
Scott on that? Oh man, I don't even want to give them any more of my energy to be honest. <laughs> well, to be to be helpful to people on the listening. You know, yeah, all right. So to be the differences. Well also also explain how we use it. Yeah. So to be fair, we use these password sharing tools in a way that literally the CEO of one password said he's never they didn't build it for that and they've never seen anyone use it the way that we're setting it up. And same with uh, the people that I've spoken with at um, LastPass, like w- the way that we're using it, like, you know, these are personal types of things to store your password. The way that we're using it is we're setting it up so that we're setting up these vaults in one password or shared folders uh, is what they call it in LastPass. And we set it up for a client and we set them as the admin. And then we set a group of VAs that are able to just uh, get access to the logins, but not view the passwords. So it's this like complicated setup of you have, you know, people that just want to be read only, and then you're setting it up for some admin who's going to be writing to, to these folders. And then uh, obviously me and you are also admins. So it's a really unusual way of using it. But that being said, uh, you know, technology wise, uh, I don't know enough to really give like a clear opinion. Like I'm sure they're both good. Uh, the little bit that I do know, I think one password has stronger security. It has a much better UI too. Yeah. Like regardless of the security, which I think both would be more than fine for, for someone. I think one password, like I'm saying is probably a more secure setup. The customer service is infinitely better with one password. And with some of these things like our setup, it's complicated and it requires sometimes, you know, getting some help. And literally it took me five minutes to get on a Skype call with the CEO of one password and then a three hour call with one of their um, project managers who did a double screen share session with us to get us set up and then helped us convert people with an Apple script from getting all of our customers folders securely transferred into a vault versus literally we're one of the biggest paying customers of 1Password and they've given me the courtesy of one screen share. No, you mean LastPass. Yeah, LastPass that I had to beg for. Yeah, we have like we have like 80 or 90 licenses with LastPass and it's it's really just been abysmal dealing with them. And, and honestly, I think that their user interface sucks. And the truth is, is that even like Dave Rail, who is in the Less Doing Bootcamp and has been on the podcast and he did the Wadcast with me, he personally can break LastPass. So yeah. You know, and they both have the Chrome browser extension to easily clip things into it. Um, iPhone app. Yeah. Oh, another thing that you can do in 1Password that you can't do in LastPass is share <laughs> secured notes. So Yeah, which is right. So like if somebody wants to uh, give you their passport number, for example, you can't do that securely yeah. in uh, LastPass. So anyway, LastPass, if you're listening, you suck. So <laughs> I wouldn't normally do that, but... You know, it's I, 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 when I'm sick, I have a very limited tolerance for BS. So there you go. Um, okay. So speaking of which. We have a few more you sucks from last week, but. Yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> we can get to those. Um, I think you'll like this one, Nick. Uh, so <laughs> there's all these, there's all these new AI bots or, you know, artificial intelligent bots that you CC in an email. So like scheduling or like graphic design, you know, there's also like, or fancy hands, like you can CC all these services. So there's a service called Reginald that sends passive aggressive emails to people for you. I thought you'd like this. So I haven't tried it, but basically if somebody pisses you off by email, you write back and you're like, I, you know, Reginald's going to handle this from here on out. And you just CC Reggie at Reginald.io. Apparently he'll, uh, he'll take care of it. Yeah. It's not real artificial intelligence. It's powered by my mom in the background. <laughs> <laughs> 
So that's one thing, you know, that, that, that reminds me of the, the Jerry Seinfeld episode where the telemarketer calls and he's like, um, you know, give me your, give me your, your number at home. And I'll call you back. <laughs> so, uh, this is something you can use to mess with those kind of people. Reginald. Uh, okay. So there's a cool article actually in fast company. It was called how keeping track of these two things totally transformed my productivity. And, I love, by the way, how like every uh, every service now they tell you how long it's going to take to read the article. <laughs> like, uh, I, I think that that's great because sort of a an over under for me usually. Um, yeah. So, so um, word count would probably be more accurate to to give because different people read at different paces. Right. I agree. I agree. But uh, okay. So basically, they said to track your energy levels, uh, and this feeds very well into peak time. So I thought that was kind of cool. Um, the person who wrote this, by the way, is Chris Bailey, who was, who's been on the podcast. And Chris basically took a, he did a year of productivity experiments, uh, including complete isolation for, I think it was two weeks or something, which was very detrimental to his productivity. Uh, so he basically like locked himself in his basement for two weeks, no, no contact with anybody. And he just got really depressed, which is not that surprising. Um, but so basically they're saying that you should track your energy levels and see where your highs and lows are. And like, I know, for example, for me, no matter what, is going on in my life and even with sleep deprivation from kids or whatnot, three to four, three to o'clock to four o'clock is like a bad time for me. Like I really have to push through. If I'm sitting down at any point between three and four, I may actually just not off. It doesn't matter. Um, it's just something I know about myself. But now here we are at 8.15 at night and I'm like raring to go and it's not like I had any coffee. So it's very worthwhile tracking. And the way that you can do this, this is not what they say in the article, but the way that I this is sort of the basis in some ways for the, the less doing peak time app, which by the way, will help you find your peak time. So which is the time that you're two to 100 times more effective than any other time of the day. And you can download that on iTunes on the app, on the app store for iTunes and for Google. Basically you can take a piece of paper and on it, you can write energy and focus and put one to 10 under each. And then every hour of the day, just remind yourself to self-check in and say what your energy levels are and your focus levels. It's really important because you may have a lot of energy from coffee at night in the morning, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have a lot of focus. So hmm. yeah, yeah, because you can get jittery or you know whatnot. And, then, and the other thing is that you can be tired and actually still have focus, but maybe not for something that's like analytical. You know, like you can, you can be really good at brainstorming when you're tired. Yeah, I mean, it's like after like a really hard swim workout, like you can be like exhausted, but you still will get like a lot of really good work done right after a swim workout, yeah. at least for me. That's, yeah, it's kind of a specific one, but sure. Yeah. Everyone should go out and do a really hard swim workout and then test your productivity. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought about the difference between energy and focus. I mean, it is true. Like if you overdo it with coffee, you do lose focus, but yeah. Know, know your limits. Yeah, right. Exactly. So uh, that was that was that was a good one. Um, there's a, a product coming out from Withings, and uh, Withings has made a couple of really smart devices. One of which is the body scale that connects to your Wi-Fi. They have a baby monitor, and now they have what appears to be the world's most accurate thermometer for home use. It's called the Thermo. It has 16 sensors. It is Wi-Fi capable, and it's a thermometer. Um, and as anyone who has kids, you know that thermometers are usually a part of your life, and they tend to be really inaccurate and you always have a decision if you're going to go uh, under the arm or rectally or in orally uh, which have their their different adjustments to make so not much to say about this but the thermo looks like it's going to be the most accurate thermo, thermo which, which, which way do you use it 
I mean, the truth is that that rectally is like the most accurate. If you if you do it axillary in the axillary, which is under the armpit, then you have to uh, add a degree typically. Uh, and orally is also bad because if somebody had something hot to drink or something cold to drink or they're not holding it in position, then it cannot be as accurate. And the, and the forehead ones, which this is, but don't tend to be that accurate either. But this one has like 16 sensors. It measures in two seconds. It's, they say it does 4,000 measurements in two seconds. So there you go. Okay, this one I thought is really cool, actually, Nick. And I thought this I thought this would be cool for us for some of the events that we're doing. Which, by the way, we have an event coming up on March 10th and 11th, which is the Less Doing BPO Workshop, and it's going to be here in New York City. If you're interested, you can go to lessdoing.com/workshop. And essentially, what Nick and I are doing is for business, what I've been doing for people's personal lives for the last six years with less doing. We're making businesses more efficient, communicate more effectively, project manage appropriately, and automate the processes that they can. So it's gonna be a really, really great workshop. Joe Polish will be there. Uh, there's gonna be some other very interesting guests. And the first day is all about learning, and the second day is all about implementation. So uh, you have anything to add on that, Nick? No, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be very hands-on. So unlike yeah. a normal conference where it's just like motivational, this is, you know, we, people will be leaving with new things implemented. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, so the movie, what, have you seen this? No. Okay, so this is a camera that you connect to your iPhone. And it, what it does is it gives the illusion, basically, of having multiple cameras and multiple camera angles at an event. So you have the one camera and you have, you're looking at it live on your on your phone and if you see here in the picture there's like a red square and then there's the blue and stuff so you can like click the the person's face and it will switch cameras you know quote unquote switch cameras and then it's suddenly on that person's face and it will track them so it's as if you had another camera that's cool uh, it's really really cool um i, I can't do it right now while we're doing this but if you watch the video it looks really interesting and it's like real-time editing and you know if you think of like a control room where someone's like you know now go to camera two and go to camera three it's that effect basically from one camera so like that okay this one i really liked so this is a study that was published in a journal called hippocampus obviously very widespread audience for that. And it says that uh, the title was Wakeful Rest Promotes the Integration of Spatial Memories into Accurate Cognitive Maps. So that is a very uh, science-y way of saying that if you take a, 10 minutes to space out after basically working hard, you will integrate those memories into, you'll learn better, essentially. So the reason that this is really cool for me is that one of the the main functions that scientists believe sleep serves is learning and basically turning the memories of the day into from short term into long term and processing those and and people people have a misconception i think a lot of times about memories like a lot of people t tend to think memories are like books on a shelf in a library but the truth is that memories are constantly being like taken out pages ripped out notes are scribbled in and then they put the book back somewhere else. Like that's really more what it's like, which is why a lot of us can sort of zone, uh, black out bad memories and also sometimes remember details of events that didn't really happen. Hmm. So what this is saying, and, and so it's concerning to me as someone who has not great sleep. I mean, I, my sleep's fine, but with the kids and stuff, it's just not great. Uh, I'm always worried about like the cognitive detriments of that. But what this was saying basically is that if you do like you read a book or you learn something or you, 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 you play a puzzle. If you take 10 minutes to literally just zone out, like just sit in the room, no phone, you know, just like, just let your mind wander. It has the same effect for that information. 
which is actually really nice to know. It's like, very, and, and the coolest thing in the study was they took a group of people with actual amnesia and they gave them a list of 30 words to remember. And they had to study those words for like 15 minutes or something, 20 minutes. And then one group basically was asked to take nine minutes. It was to just chill out. And the other group basically was just quizzed on it right away. Now, these are people with actual amnesia. The group that was quizzed right away couldn't recall any of the words. And the group that spaced out for nine minutes had 80% recall. Is there some type of like uh, online quiz that we could take to see, uh, take those 30 questions and then see like what the optimal amount of time of zoning out is for us to remember the highest percentage? Because I, I, th- I just feel my gut tells me like I would do better immediately after than nine minutes later. But I'm curious. I'm, I'm kind of curious to see. Well, keep in mind, this is memory stuff. So, right. So like you could take like 30 words that you don't know and try to remember them. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then take this, take that break. Pretty cool. It's really, it's actually, it's very like, um, uh, not refreshing, but it's like, it's relief. It's a relief almost in some ways to know that that can happen. So, and I've never heard of the term wakeful rest. It's like a fancy way of saying meditation. Well, no, actually, meditation would be way too focused for what they're talking about. They literally just want you to like just zone out, just like daydream. Huh. Yeah, isn't that a form of med- isn't zoning out still a form of meditation? Um, you know, I, probably, but I think some people would argue that with meditation, you're actually it's an actual practice that you're engaging in. Um, See, when I meditate, I'm thinking about the space between my thoughts, so it's really like wakeful rest. Really? So when and when do you meditate? <laughs> <laughs> And during my wakeful rest period, I meditate. Oh, okay. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, so, and that is definitely not your peak time. So uh, check out the title of this one. Uh, if you want to lose weight, eat that cake in front of a mirror. So they did this study with participants that was supposed to look like a taste test. And essentially they found that if you are in front of a mirror, not like you're like planted in front of a mirror, which is just like a mirror in the room, you see yourself eating like the bad food and you are likely to eat less of it because basically you see yourself in like a bad light. It's kind of interesting. So put a mirror in your, in your kitchen and you won't eat the bad stuff. Uh, but the only thing about this that I didn't like with this study is that the two foods, the, good, the bad food and the good food was a piece of chocolate cake and the good food was a container of fruit salad from a can. So it's not like... Yeah, both are bad. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's not like one was like a kale salad and they ate more of that. When they, I mean, it doesn't, it, it's weird. Um, although there is other research that I've read to this effect. So it's not a bad idea if you want to try to like have a better self-image essentially. Yeah. Another trick is you just buy one of those mirrors like they, they have in the circus. It's a little bit indented. So you just look fatter. Yeah, <laughs> that, that helps too. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So the, the, there's two more here. This one's from Bulletproof. So he wrote this article, Hack Your Stress and Sex with These Seven Adaptogens. And I just thought they were worth mentioning. So adaptogens are uh, herbs usually, but they, essentially what they do is they help regulate levels of cortisol, which is our stress hormone. So uh, if you have too much cortisol, they will help to bring it down. And if you have too little cortisol, which is also a bad thing, it will help to bring it up. And uh, so the ones that will do that are things like ginseng, uh, ashwagandha, which is the second most powerful Ayurvedic uh, herb, holy basil or tulsi. And I love, I'm a big fan of holy basil and bacopa monieri. And bacopa monieri is an interesting one. It's also an Ayurvedic herb. And I think that it's in alpha brain. And basically it's been shown very effectively to help with memory uh, as a, but in an interesting way, it doesn't necessarily like 
it, it certainly doesn't amp up your cognitive, like your cognition. What it does is it's anti-anxiety and anti-depression. So it kind of like gets in the way of you stopping those those thoughts. Otherwise, like it helps you just sort of like relax into it. The only problem with Bacopa monieri is that there are people who've reported that they basically get to the point where they just don't give a shit essentially like because it's so relaxing it's so like demotivating in some ways so that's definitely not something that would help your productivity but it's something to be uh, aware of um and then there's a couple more but one that i also really like is rhodiola rosea rosea and it's just cool because so this is a plant that grows in like the harshest harshest climates uh like on the side of the himalayan mountains basically and essentially gets sun like four days a year and has to grow through three feet of snow to get to that sun and then conserve it essentially like it's like it's like living in a gulag uh and somehow it translates those properties into something that when you eat the plant you get a lot of those anti-stress abilities as well so those are some good things to try. And I do recommend these. I, I, I take something called adrenal health most days from Gaia Herbs. And it's got like six of those things. And I think it's really good. So, okay. So then the last one, and uh, this this one could open up some discussion for us or, or not. But basically it's about... It's sort of about Slack in some ways. It's about, it says the triumph of email. Why does one of the world's most reviled technologies keep winning? So without even getting into what the article says, because I disagree with almost all of it, I just think it's an interesting topic. Email is such an interesting thing, especially for Nick and I, because personally, we're both in Mark Zero kind of guys. Uh, and on a business side, we've really had a lot of success moving companies almost completely off, well, pretty much completely off of email internally and using Slack instead. And people have a really hard time letting go of email, even though most of them hate it. Mm. Yeah, but I, I, do, I mean, I think that email, I don't know. Who knows, like, if email will always exist, but I mean, you always have to communicate, well, however that's going to, you know, whether that's going to be Slack email or some new tool that comes out in a few years. Right. And the thing is, is that I think that part of the reason that people don't like email is because they never learned how to use it. Exactly. It's not the only example of that. I mean, there are other situations like, well, I mean, you think of like a simile of uh, somebody getting a car, the keys to a car without their license, but there's no laws and they can't hit anybody. Like, I mean, that's basically what you're talking about with email because it's a free thing that anybody can sign up for. Like you can get a Gmail account technically when you're 13 and obviously people get it when they're, you know, before that. Uh, and there's no rules. You know, you can email anyone, anytime, anywhere and there's, there's no rules. So it's very quick for people to just like throw their hands up because email gets out of control. But I don't know what they expect. Well, look, you can have the same issue with the tools that we recommend for BPO, like Slack and Trello, because it's like there's no structure uh, if you if you misuse it or you don't know how to use it properly or all the integrations that can make it really powerful, people get just as frustrated with those too. That's that's where you know that's where it comes in. Like it, knowing how to properly use something, it's not just you know, hey, you should use Gmail or you should use Slack or Trello. It's like you have to properly know how to use the all these things, or else it can get out of hand. Yes, absolutely. And, and what they say in the article is like, we're stressing ourselves out because we're, in, we're living in notification hell. And I've said this before, and I have to remind people that these tools are yours to use to communicate with your world. They're not meant to be leashes for the outside world to get a hold of you whenever they want. Uh, but, but even beyond that, yeah, I mean, you can always, we can talk about how you can turn off notifications and you can do all sorts of stuff. But the, the biggest thing that people have to realize is that email is an asynchronous communication tool. 
and you have to treat it that way. So if you're thinking of email as like being on the phone, that's a bad thing because that's when people start to write three word emails back and forth to people. You know, and, and honestly, you and I fall into this trap. We know at this point that you and I should not be emailing each other at all. Yeah, I mean, it's just inefficient the way we do it. You know, if it's if it's something that's actionable, we're using Trello, and um, if it's something that we need to chat about, we're using Slack or we're using Roger for asynchronous communication that will just be more efficient than typing. Yeah, and that, and the thing is, is you have to respect the level what what asynchronous communication does for you because it allows you to communicate with anybody in the world in any time zone, really. Uh, because if you think about it, and I had this experience, I remember, you know, we, you and I are basically the same age. Like, I don't know if you ever remember having to plan like when to call somebody that was in another time zone. You know, I had a I, I had a girlfriend when I was in college who lived in Switzerland, and I would like literally stay up till one in the morning to call and wake her up, you know, and talk for like fifteen minutes. And then go to sleep and like it, it, it's, it's and it's and that was you know 15 years ago so it's like the asynchronous thing is a really interesting thing to me and it also it also makes it so people like me who have limited time and have kids and have other responsibilities and stuff that, that all of us have our own uh, you really can take advantage of that it means that the person that works at a nine-to-five job can still have a side hustle. Yeah, I don't really agree with we're stressing ourselves out it's no it's it's really how you use it and how you Like you were saying, like you can set notification preferences. If you properly are using email with all the filters, like most things shouldn't be notifying you in your inbox anyways. You know, in Slack, you can put like a do not disturb. Like I have it permanently set on Slack. So it always looks like I'm not on. So yeah, it's it's maybe, I mean, I guess it is true probably for over 90% of people because they're just not using it right. Yeah, exactly. So that, you know, on a personal level, there's, you can take one of my inbox zero courses if you want. Uh, but on a business side, there really isn't a reason why you should be using email for internal communications. It's not, it's not the right tool for it, whether you're a remote team or not. So there you go. There's the, the philosophical discussion on email and notifications. Um, so uh, next week, the, the interview is going to be with Jesse Yandel, who is a decorated special forces operative in the U.S. Army and was a, uh, just an amazing guy. And Nick and I got to meet him when we were at Fort Bragg. And uh, you're going to love that interview. And this is going to be coming out. Yeah, we still have a, a week or two, I think, before the BPO workshop. So anything new with Calvin? Um, still, still slowly releasing it out. More and more people are using it. Found a couple of finding less bugs. So it's, uh, I made three plans that I did this weekend with it. So it was working. Awesome. Okay. Well, check out calvinapp.com to get, in my opinion, the most elegant scheduling app for personal stuff I've ever seen, uh, for now for personal stuff. And, uh, in full disclosure, I am an advisor to next company, but I only advise companies that I believe in. So There you go. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. The Less Doing Podcast pulls together the top experts in the industry to help you optimize, automate, and outsource everything in your life so you can start doing the things you really want to do again. What would you do if you could only work an hour a day? Would you crumble or would you thrive? When I was sick with Crohn's disease, I was faced with that reality because there were days when I literally couldn't eke out more than an hour of work a day. And I had to figure out ways to not only get everything done, but get more done than I was doing before. And that is how less doing was born. Less doing is about you. It's the easiest way to learn and implement a huge amount of productivity tips into your life in a short amount of time. 
Whether you're a crazy busy business owner, a tired executive in a large company, or a stressed out soccer mom, we've brought it all together for you to help you overcome the overwhelm in your life. For the latest how-tos and actual tips on becoming more productive, sign up for my newsletter over at lessdoing.com. But I want to offer you all something more. As listeners of this podcast, I want to give you the opportunity to get on the phone with one of my Less Doing certified coaches. I've trained each one of them myself, and they really know what they're doing. The first call is completely free, and you will get some real advice and tips on how you can be more productive in your life and get back to making things easier again. Thanks for listening, and now enjoy the interview. So now I'm speaking with Taylor Pearson, who is the author of End of Jobs. So Taylor, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Uh, thank you for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So what's your background? How did you get into this? My background, I guess, I usually say digital marketing consulting, which is so vague now as to be almost meaningless. <laughs> but I was uh, working, I got a job after college working at a, a marketing agency uh, and then ended up going to work at this company that had a um, office in San Diego and an office in Hong Kong. I was working in the company and eventually ran part of the company from San Diego and we sold um, B2B e-commerce equipment. Um, but what was interesting is I was kind of looking at them also running this company in Hong Kong, which was a uh, online community or online forum for location independent entrepreneurs. So people that were traveling, running businesses. And I kind of started to see like how this works and how, you know, a lot of the stuff you talk about automation and outsourcing enabled kind of this new entrepreneurial life script. Uh, and so the background on the book and me is kind of how was I trying to articulate what this new life script looks like and how all of a sudden it's become possible. So, and what gave you the motivation to write the book? I think to some extent, I felt like it was um, sort of in the zeitgeist. Like I think uh, everyone, a lot of people see this going on. There was actually a mentor of mine who was thinking about writing the book and had a lot of other business stuff going on and um, just like couldn't really hack out nine months or a year to write a book. Um, and then I think, uh, it was also something that I was kind of personally frustrated by that I had friends. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. I went to college in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, and those aren't terribly entrepreneurial locations. Certainly there are entrepreneurs there, but, you know, growing up, most of, uh, my friends, parents, or, you know, people I went to college with became, you know, accountants or lawyers or, um, worked in large corporations. And it wasn't a really entrepreneurial um, approach to their careers. And so I was kind of trying to articulate, you know, how do I say like, this is what's going on and this is the opportunity. Okay. And <clears throat> what, what should people, what, what are people going to get out of the book? So, uh, the thing I really wanted people to take away from the book is, um, why this is going on and, and what the opportunity is. So to make that a little, um, clear, there's, I think two major, uh, forces, which are driving things, um, both of which, I know are kind of core principles for you, which are automation and outsourcing. So these really dramatic gains in um, efficiency and productivity that have kind of changed um, changed the rules for how business works. I actually just read this book called The Organization Man um, by William White, and it was published uh, sometime in the 1950s. And he's kind of talking about all these forces coming together, which create the corporation. Um, so you need to have these large integrated corporations to be able to buy infrastructure to have economies of scale. And this was kind of the way business was done in the 20th century. And this is a way a lot of people still approach their careers, right? It's, you know, you want to go work in a, a large corporation or you want to work, uh, kind of build these economies of scale. And we're seeing a lot more now kind of economies 
um, of speed. So like how have, have the rules changed in that sense? And let me, I guess, tell like kind of a specific story. I have a lot of friends that are, uh, accountants. Um, and so I, I have kind of an adaptation of Nassim Taleb's The Turkey Problem, for anyone that's read Anti-Fragile, um, that we look at low degrees of change or low degrees of volatility as necessarily safe, um, when that may or may not be the case. So you can imagine a scenario where, um, you know, you have an accounting department at a large corporation or um, even an accounting firm um, where all of a sudden you see either automation or outsourcing in some form coming in and radically changing that career trajectory. Um, so, you know, someone that's 40 and all of a sudden, you know, the department figures out they can outsource accounting to India or the Philippines or wherever for half the cost, or they figure out they can automate away half the department. But kind of these tr- careers, which were traditionally considered safe and secure, aren't really safe and secure anymore. Absolutely. So now one of the things you talk about in your book is restrictions and limitations, right? Yes. I think I'm sure you're familiar with um, The Goal by Ellie Goldratt. Yes. Um, which is a terrific book. Uh, he kind of, he wrote this book, I think in the eighties talking about, uh, manufacturing. Um, so if you look at a manufacturing floor, there's always one bottleneck. So there's always one part of the, the supply chain or of the, the chain on the factory floor, which is slowing down everything else. And basically any resource, any effort you apply to something, um, other than that one bottleneck is, is a wasted resource. There's always one clear limit to whatever the system is and anything done except for fixing that limit is basically a wasted resource. You're not going to get any kind of return or any kind of advantage to using that. And so I I kind of use this in the context of careers that what's happened over um, the past really 500 to 700 years of Western history is the economy has gone through stages with different limits. So if you want to go back 500 years, we were living in a, a very agricultural, at least in Western Europe, very agricultural society or everywhere in agricultural society. And as you saw that evolve, it went from agricultural to industrial. And then the people who profited in the industrial age were the industrialists. They were um, people that owned large factories. You think of like Rockefeller is maybe the classic example. Um, these like large supply chains we moved kind of over the course of the 20th century from that industrial model uh, into what I call the knowledge economy, or you could some people call it the service-based economy, but that um, kind of all the advantage of industrialists, the limit kind of became um, knowledge. You can, IBM is maybe like the prototypical corporation here, right? That they were built, you know, I think Bill Gates has some quote that, you know, all my capital walks in and out of the door every day. So it's, you know, the knowledge economy. And I think what we're seeing now is this transition from, a knowledge economy into an entrepreneurial economy where it's not just memorizing best practices or good practices like you would like go get your CPA, like this is how it's done, but it's understanding how to um, operate in context or in environments where things are changing much more quickly. You could say things are complex instead of complicated. Yeah. Okay. I, uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. And how do you apply that in your in your current life personally? Good question. So I think one framework that uh, has kind of stuck in my mind that I talk about in the book is the Kinevin framework. It's C-Y-N-E-F-I-N. And it's a kind of classic two-by-two management matrix. And it goes from simple to complicated to complex to chaotic. So you can kind of like couch the terms I just used in that framework of simple as agricultural, complicated as industrial and kind of knowledge, and then complex is entrepreneurial. Um, and so like, you know, one thing I think about is it's often very rewarding or we kind of get the certain satisfaction from 
working on complicated tasks or simple tasks. Like, you know, it kind of, it feels good to clean your bedroom in a certain sense in the way that spending two hours working on a difficult problem that doesn't have a clear answer um, without getting anywhere, doesn't really feel that great. But in terms of what's actually productive, um, what, what really moves things forward for me personally, it's focusing on that complex work. So a lot of my time, a lot of my energy is spent doing things like writing uh, in particular for me, doesn't really have like a clear outcome. It's not a clear, simple, solvable problem, but it's kind of like working in this murky, complex world. Okay, that's and that's interesting. I totally get that too. I I think that there's a lot of benefit to the the ability to wander a little bit and sort of see what happens. You know, given that you know, if, if you provide some sort of uh, not necessarily framework, but like a corral a little bit, you know, for you to dabble in. Yeah, and I guess one other way I talked about it too is. Um, definition as the hardest thing that, you know, a lot of times I think I would certainly feel this way coming out of school. And I think a lot of way I do that. You kind of want someone to, to tell you what to do, right? You know, you tell me what the outcome I need to get is, uh, and you tell me how to do it and I'll go do it. Um, and that was kind of, you know, that's how our school system and a lot of, um, people are trained, but that the much harder and the much more valuable thing is, can you figure out what's worth doing and can you figure out how to do it? So that process of defining the task, defining the role, defining your business, defining your relationships, whatever it is. Right. So, uh, and when, and when you write, I'm just curious, actually, personally, like, do you have some sort of, um, like routine that you go through or, you know, a place that you'd like to write in? To help you get into like a flow state? I do. I like to journal before I start writing. So I use a program called OmWriter, O-M-M Writer. And it's just it like Ohm Writer. Ohm Writer, yeah. <laughs> but you know how good my Zen Buddhist terminology is, right? <laughs> <That's fine>. um, <laughs> thank you. Um, but yeah, it has like some relaxing music in the background. And like every time you press a key, it makes this kind of like uh, clicking noise that's kind of relaxing. Um, so I usually free write for... Um, five or 10 minutes. A lot of times, um, I'll answer two questions, which is, um, what am I grateful for? And then what am I anxious about? Because I just want to like, get it all out on paper, particularly before I do creative work. I kind of, I can just like put all my anxieties, uh, in words. I just, I don't, I don't worry about them so much anymore. Cause now they're, you know, if I forget them, I can always come back and look at them again. Um, and then, uh, I usually listen to like some kind of, um, mindless music. So like a lot of like poppy, terrible music, actually like house or, um, Justin Bieber or whatever, something that I'll totally zone wow. out to. Uh, and then I usually write for two to three hours, usually like the Pomodoro technique. So 25 minutes on, five minutes off. Um, and after two or three hours, I usually start to flag and I can kind of feel the writing getting clunky. Okay. And then, and then as far as like other things that you're spending your time on, what's like the next activity that's, that takes a lot of time. Uh, so I guess usually how I structure my days, I'll wake up in the morning, uh, I'll read for about an hour. Um, I will do yoga for maybe 10 minutes, meditate, and then I'll sit down and kind of go through that writing process I just described. Uh, and then afternoons for me are usually um, meetings. So like a podcast like this, um, or meetings with clients or other business meetings, uh, and then like a lot of like managerial stuff. So kind of for me, at least the productive time is the morning. So trying to block out uh, at least two hours and I shoot for three or four um, of my mornings. And then in the afternoon, it's yeah, it's a lot more like responsive and just kind of blocking that responsive work into a three or four hour block in the afternoon saying, you know, I'm going to be responsive and not proactive during this time. But, you know, that's fine because it's it's time blocked off. Gotcha. 
Now, so the last question that I always like to ask on these interviews is, uh, what are your top three pieces of advice for people to be more effective? Um, so I would say number one, I think I really got into meditation maybe three years ago. Um, I think that has done uh, more for me than I can really articulate intelligently. Um, I think in particular, I notice just kind of my state of mind on days when I do and days when I don't and my ability to distance myself from the work kind of on an emotional level that I don't feel as, you know, when someone like doesn't like something you do, your work, it's very easy, at least for me to take that personally. And you feel like it's kind of a rejection of yourself. Uh, and I think meditation has really helped me distance myself from my work in that way that a rejection of my work by one individual is not a rejection of me as a human being by everyone. Those are two um, very separate things. And I think that makes me a little more effective in the work because I'm not coming at it from this perspective of, um, oh gosh, I hope this doesn't uh, offend anyone or, oh gosh, I hope this sits well with everyone. But, um, you know, how can I do something deepful, meaningful, impactful to, uh, to one person at least, or to some small group of people and not worry too much about the rest. Uh, I guess number two thing that makes a big difference for me is, um, having like a morning ritual. And I guess this kind of ties in with, meditation. Um, but I found like if I can really tightly structure the first 60 to 90 minutes of my day uh, and start to build some momentum in the day, I kind of feel like, you know, after I read and I do some yoga and I meditate, I kind of like feel like I'm winning at life already. It's like 60 minutes into the day and I'm like, oh, like this life thing is going pretty well today. Like I might as well um, <clears throat> keep it rolling. That's been really effective for me. Uh, and then I just, maybe the most recent thing I've been thinking about is um, having more structured relationship time outside of work. So I think my tendency, and I'm, I'm sure most people is like, like work kind of creeps into every um, waking moment. And, you know, particularly I've kind of structured date nights or structured meetings with friends at like um, 6, 30, 7 o'clock where I just have to hard cut off the day. Um, I, I'm obviously much more productive in like the few hours leading up to that because I'm like, oh, I'm excited to go to this thing and uh, I'll get a lot more done. And then I feel a lot more kind of rested and ready to come back at the day the next day. So those would be my three. Yeah, no, no, those are awesome. So tell people where they can get the book, where they can find out more and get on this train. So you can get the book. Uh, it's on Amazon if you search The End of Jobs. If you want to download, um, I have the first three chapters on my site, which is Taylor Pearson, P-E-A-R-S-O-N dot M-E, or you can go to eojbook.com. Awesome. Well, hey, Taylor, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I hope everyone will check out the book and uh, all the best. Thank you for having me on and uh, thank you everyone for listening. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Less Doing podcast. If you want to find out more information of the show, we would love to hear from you. You can go to lessdoing.com where you can look at Ari's blog, see the show notes for this episode, and also look at all the other episodes before this. If you want to send us a voicemail, we would love to hear from you and we'll play it on the show. You go to lessdoing.com, click on contact, and look on the right side of the page where you'll see a, a send voicemail button. Click on that and go ahead and record an audio message for us. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter. Ari's Twitter handle is at Ari Mizell, and mine is at Felix Bird. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. See you next time.